I am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode of the McKinsey Future of Asia podcast. My name is Roland Dillon, and I'm a partner based in McKinsey's Melbourne office. In this episode, I am joined by guest speaker Major General Andrew Hocking. He's a long-standing figure in the world of Australian crisis response. We're going to be talking about the importance of trust in building resilience, why a focus on communities is so important, and lessons learned from dealing with both the bushfires and the COVID-19 pandemic. Major General Hocking, before we start, could you introduce yourself to the audience? So Major General Andrew Hocking, I'm the Deputy Coordinator at the National Bushfire Recovery Agency, I'm a serving member of the Australian Defence Force, and a proud serving member of the Army, but equally a proud member of the, you know, this whole of government National Bushfire Recovery Agency team, which is an exceptional team. My journey sort of led me to NBRA. I guess in the disaster space, I was many years ago a battalion commander in Townsville responding to Cyclone Yassi, where my troops had a direct involvement with supporting communities in their recovery, particularly in those early stages. Uh, I was posted to the United States Pacific Command for two years, where one of the plans that I led for them was the Defence Support to Civil Authorities Plan, which included domestic and overseas disaster response. I also took some time off the Army a while ago and partnered up with an organisation called the Centre for Social Impact, and I wrote a piece titled Ganging Up on the Problem, which was about how various sectors and groups can come together to support veterans and try and make it easier for veterans to navigate their way to the supports that are available to them. And then when I was a brigade commander, my last job up in Brisbane, I was a member of the Queensland Disaster Management Committee, chaired by the Premier. My troops also supported a lot of defence assistance to uh, civil community activities, including bushfire responses and other things. I was the brigade that did a practice call-out of the reserves. I think it was in the November before the 1925s. It might have been a little bit earlier than that. And I, I was deploying troops at the time, I think it was in January, that were heading down south to Victoria and New South Wales and other places to support communities in the 1925s. When I got the call from the Chief of Army outlining this opportunity to contribute, and the rest is history. How do you think the bushfire response helped prepare Australia for COVID-19? That's a great question. You know, clearly there was a strong interplay between the nation transitioning from its response to bushfires at a community level right the way up to a national and international level to the nation from community to international level responding to a COVID pandemic. And there, in my view, there has been some positives that have come out of that, uh, that hopefully as a nation we bank. 
But at the same time, the interplay has created enormous stresses for individuals, but equally to the system. Let me start at the community, because I think with everything, you've got to start at the community, not where you're, you are at, but where your effects are aimed. So starting at the community, the most important part of this system, I think if the, the bushfires, unlike a lot of other bushfires, captured the whole of Australia's, if not the world's, imagination. That's rare. You know, sometimes in Australia, it's just a pocket or a state. Um, This is the entire East Coast and therefore the whole country internationally. So in an odd way, I think people were disaster aware in a really cruel way. It was at forefront of mind, their fallibility as individuals, families, communities, was at the forefront of mind. It had to be because it was under enormous pressure. So whilst that's tragic in itself, in many ways it set a set of awareness conditions, awareness of disaster, the way that real things can really impact you, that may have in some ways aided the COVID cause rather than it just sort of seeping up out of normal state of play uh, in Australian society, which might have made it more difficult to get the attention of people in the appropriate way. I think the bushfires forced connections to be formed at community level between state governments and Commonwealth government across sectors. And of course, those relationships were then the same relationships or similar that were used at the community all the way up to the intergovernmental level to respond to COVID. So it's all about relationships, you know, it is such an important thing. Structures and processes and mechanisms are necessary, but they come to life and deliver real things through real people and real trust relationships. So in many ways, I think the bushfires created, stressed first, but then through that stress created a set of connections trust that was then leveraged, appropriately so, as as COVID started to to impact. I mean, the downsides for community, and there are many, many, with the convergence of two disasters, but more than two disasters. You know, a lot of the bushfire communities, COVID communities were off the back of drought. Um, And equally, they're off the back of flood, all in the same calendar year. So that in itself meant that that communities were more fragile, tired, stressed, traumatised. And that was not a positive in terms of their ability to deal with yet another stressor in their life. So that in itself was an interesting relationship. And and clearly as as time went on and COVID started to uh, raise in profile magnitude risk, there was always a risk that the bushfire in communities would be forgotten or at least just sort of gathered up in the the broader challenges that the nation was facing. And, you know, there was a real determination not to underplay COVID at all, but to be the voice of people, not that they necessarily needed it, but to make sure that people and decision makers and policy makers didn't forget about this significant group of people 
that had been impacted by these many things in addition to COVID. So other things that I think moving up a level now, let's say the state-commonwealth relations, I mean, bushfire forced that in so many ways, not starting from scratch, there's existing processes and systems, but just the size of this bushfire, the multiple state dimensions, the complexity of it, um, in terms of the damage that it caused, it needed a Team Australia approach to support people. It couldn't just be up states, you've got all the resources over you. So it forced, in a very natural way in some ways, the two levels of government to come together with their resources, their expertise um, and their coordination. And I think that, at least from my outsider's view, and I'd, I'm, I'm not political, clearly, but I'd be surprised if that didn't further form close team relationships with the political players in the country, which is not always the case, you know, as the, the normal run-a-mill of politics and the way the nation operates, which is fine. But in this case, it's sort of forced that cooperation and let's put that aside and let's work together. And, of course, that was so important in the approach to covid I think, and let's go broader now, the cross-sector partnerships, this is really important stuff. You know, there's not many problems of the magnitude of COVID or bushfire or drought or floods that can be dealt with by one part of the nation. You know, honestly, if it could be, then it's not really a big deal. Business swings into action or philanthropic swing into action, but this needed everyone to swing into action, the bushfires. Um, and of course, COVID as well. So that built cross-sector partnerships where the Commonwealth or state governments were dealing with people in charities and businesses, I think almost like they'd never done before. It was a, hey, we're all in here and we sort of leave our brand at the door and, and bring our purpose and focus together in the room. Again, I can't imagine that that couldn't have had anything other than positive benefits to COVID, but equally all of these things should, and if we can sustain them, have positive benefits to the nation as we move forward, which we'll talk about as time goes on, no doubt. And I think probably the last bit is the defence state relationships. We've got a strong history of defence coming from uh, you know, the colonies, I guess, initially, but then being recruited locally, the CMF uh, lay down in Australia, Citizens Military Force. So we've always actually had in our memory a relationship between a Commonwealth entity or probably more than that, a national entity of defence down at state, if not local level. But we've never really operated it in that way. And, and bushfire forced us to do that, bit similar to what I was doing in Queensland, where I had a direct relationship with the Premier and her team in terms of how the local defence capability might be brought to bear sensibly without stealing other people's work and jobs, but where it was beyond capacity to support uh, communities. So I think that in itself, the relationship between defence and the state when you look at how COVID played out and what defence under Lieutenant General Fruin has done to support states and the Commonwealth was warmed up, uh, I think, and relationships were, were already formed. And the last thing which a lot of people don't talk about, but I feel like I'm obliged to, 
is the relationship, what it did to a soldier's relationship like me or those that I serve or serve with me, what it did in terms of their relationship to the community. We often do our work as military people overseas, out of mind, out of sight, where you want it to be. But equally, we all join to serve, and it's very challenging for defence people when you see your countrymen in direct stress. And for whatever reasons, there's not an avenue to be, for you to be able to serve. So I think in many ways, it, it gave soldiers the ability to serve firsthand the people that they serve. And that's been a positive thing for, I think, everybody that I've spoken to, whether in uniform or not out of uniform. You know, we belong to the nation. So I'd summarise that because it's all about relationships. And, you know, I know there's a common term out there, but I genuinely believe in it. You can only move at the speed of trust and you only develop trust by being and working together as individuals and actually doing things together as individuals. So amongst that, from the community all the way up to national institutions, the biggest thing that I think Bushfire did in preparation for COVID was it it gave an injection of trust, which I'm not saying was in deficit, but whatever it was, it added to whatever the state was in terms of the trust relationship. And that in itself, I think, has contributed to our COVID success. And, and probably something a little bit more tactical, but, and, and it's a bit the other way around. When COVID hit the bushfire, and, and whilst we're trying to, in the early stages, roll out this bushfire recovery with all of our partners, we communities couldn't communicate with each other, which is such an important part of hope and healing and, and setting the human conditions to move forward in recovery. And, and equally, governments and private sector and the not-for-profit sector didn't have the ability as easily to connect with those they're trying to support. And that, you know, in some ways, the stress of bushfire forced us to adapt really quickly, not just at BAU pace. And we established virtual ways of doing things and uh, and understanding things. And I've got to be honest with you, I actually think that our understanding and our being the nation, collective across sector and jurisdiction, our understanding of the problem and the challenges, resources available and our ability to connect resources with need was almost better when we went into the virtual environment because of COVID constraints because in an odd way, it made it easier for us to all get together more rapidly, more regularly, access a broader group of people that would be more difficult to visit in some ways. So there's something in that. Yeah, you need face-to-face, absolutely, and we were lucky to have that. But this speed of iteration and virtual connection and the power of that technology to build common understanding, I think, really allowed COVID to force a set of conditions on the bushfire recovery that we continue to use today. And I still engage virtually probably as much as I do physically. Um, And it's the combination of the two that I think helps us sort of take things forward. Everyone talks about collaborating and building trust, but practically, how do you build the trust necessary for effective collaboration? The key point about collaboration 
and trust is that, you know, it's a human endeavor by definition. Institutions are inanimate objects. They don't trust each other. They transact with each other. But it's the humans within them that, have, that of course, so it's a human endeavor. That's probably the key. How do you build it? Well, look, there's lots of ways, but there are some simple things that are almost irreducible in some ways. And that is you, you can't build it when you're not present together. I think back to a visit I did to Northern Ireland a few years ago and just seeing that by physical separation, often just by a street, and therefore people not being able to see, actually, this person is no different to me, it erodes trust. So actually being together is really important to build trust, but I think there's a natural human condition that when you're apart and operating in separate sort of silos or systems, that you build a little bit of distrust or scepticism. So it needs to be together. I think time. It's not something you can inject and suddenly accelerate at a disaster's convenience. You know, hence the the big inhibitor, often the thing that slows things down, whether it's on military operations or as in coalition operations, operations in communities, disaster support, is the irreducible speed that it takes to build trust. And it's measured in years, not weeks or days. So you need a vessel that brings people together. You need time. And I think probably the last thing that builds trust is doing, actually doing things together, sharing victories. These are really important ingredients that bring it together and drop barriers that often have built over years, if not decades of systems and mechanisms and who's your boss and who do you work for and, and, and all that type of stuff. So what does it mean? You know, where are the opportunities in it as we, we build off the back of this disaster or series of disasters? And there are huge opportunities. Um, but I, I go back to, you know, with that simple framing of the, the key ingredients to trust and, whether you, and, and an agreement, I'm not sure whether the audience would agree that, that trust is probably your biggest inhibitor. We use a term in the military, train hard, fight easy. And so we train a lot. Military operations is not dissimilar to disaster. When it happens, it's it's big and it's on. And and the consequence of getting it wrong is high and personal. But of course, like disasters, wars happen episodically. So you've got a choice to make. Do you sort of scale down between them? and then sort of learn rapidly. And there's lots of stories of history of doing that. Or do you understand the system, understand the humans in it, understand that with an ongoing consistent investment in building those relationships and and systems, it might be a little bit of pain, but it is so far outweighed by the gain or the risk reduction when it counts. Now, but of course, you've got to be thinking strategically and a whole of nation to invest in these concepts. So from my perspective, I think whatever we do off the back of 1920, we must continue to fuel those relationships with vessel, with doing things together, 
celebrating the victories together. We've got to continue to do that. And of course, the way to do it is in two huge opportunities. One is to further invest, which is not big cost (laughs) compared to the cost of not, but further invest in training, exercising and education regimes that are agnostic of what badge you wear because you wear one and it's that one and build a system that brings all of that together and has constant regular relationships, common lexicon, common understanding, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's opportunity one. Opportunity two going forward, of course, is that you move off the back of this into a resilience mindset that says, hey, you know what, all the relationships that we built during this recovery, we're now just going to retool and tweak with a focus on resilience and we're going to sustain them just to make Australia better, not just for disaster, but in general. And then from there, when we arrive at the next disaster, it's not, g'day, I'm Andrew Hocking, I know nothing about this space and can you please trust me even though you don't know me? It's, right, we're now changing phase but same relationships. I think that's a huge opportunity but it's a fundamental change in the way we think and resource. It's strategic in nature, but it's very acutely risk-informed with a question of what is the risk of not doing versus the risk of doing. And, you know, in my line of work, along with many others, I know what the risk of not doing is, and I wouldn't want to see that domestically in Australia. Bearing in mind what you previously said about trust in the team, What advice would you have for leaders wanting to build team resilience? I think people actually already know the answer to this one, and that is focus on the customer, the community, uh, not the institution. I think that's really the key. But be prepared to be drawn off that path and ask the question of how are you going to sustain remaining on that path? Humility being one of them, but not being about brand, but being about outcome. There's a whole heap of things that go with it. But at the end of the day, I really trust community. You know, why shouldn't we? We've got some of the, we've got an amazing culture in Australia with amazing people, and they don't all work in cubicles in Canberra or Sydney. Uh, most of them actually are doing the hard graft on a farm or a, you know, a small business and everything in between. But they've all got this amazing, practical, pragmatic value and personality to them that doesn't really need our help, you know, in terms of institutional, other than enabling it and staying focused on it. So I think we need to, the, the biggest thing would be that we collectively, whether It's private sector, philanthropic sector, Commonwealth government, state government, department, everything in between. It's about in situations like this, and then I think extending into resilience, it's, you know, what's the national responsibility here? Um, And that is to focus on community, to drop the brand and, and keep focused on that. So I think that would be the main thing for me, but that's really, really hard to do really hard to do. Takes a set of values. But I've got to say, it's values that are there. 
in every individual. I've not come across somebody that works for the state government, Commonwealth government, other departments, community group, private sector. I've not come across one single person that doesn't share that aspiration. But our mechanisms and our sometimes our media cycle and other things don't necessarily allow permission for that brand to be dropped for the purpose to be the focus. And I, I think if we can work out a way, particularly in disaster, that those external conditions remain permissible for cooperative, collaborative, community-enabling and focused behaviour, then we'll fully harness the resources, the personality, the culture of, you know, this great country to solve problems that are big but well and truly within our human resources, our, our, our national resources to solve. So that's probably the big thing. I think the other thing that is really important is the status quo is good but not all good. And you've got to live comfortably with both things. But like everything, it's not a binary choice. Is the system good or is the system not good? The question is what parts of the system are good that we want to keep and foster and fuel and what parts of it have opportunity to further improve with behaviours, training, education and a, a range of things that we've already discussed. And sometimes, you know, whether we're in private sector or military, because we're humans and we like to, we're proud of what we've done, which is good too, we think that by changing what we've done is a, undermines ourselves or our, our organisation, where, of course, it couldn't be further from the truth. The ability to challenge that and evolve that um, is something that we should be very proud of and, and is so in our national DNA to, you know, be innovative and change and drive that change. Uh, I'm just not, not totally convinced that, again, the conditions are set around agencies, departments, levels of government, uh, sectors that really allow that status quo to be challenged and, and further evolved. And, uh, you know, we need help in doing that. Uh, you know, people like me setting ways, you know, Major General, 32 years of service, he can't change. Um, well, I can change. I need help. I need challenge. I need partnership. I need different ways of thinking brought into the room, but all with one simple purpose in mind, and, and that is how do we better serve the communities that we serve? And, you know, I often say to the, I, I work with some great people, public servants mostly, but equally some other military people, and we're all the same. We join to serve. We just serve in different ways. And uh, just reflecting on service, what it is, you know, the question, am I serving up or am I serving down or, or is it a combination of both and have I got that balance right? These are important challenges and things to reflect on. But I know when we all come together and go, no, we're focused to serve down to the communities, my goodness, we can do some amazing things. It'd be nice to perpetuate that as we further evolve as a nation. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential, but the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise, it is how Asia will lead. 
keep listening to the future of asia podcast is there anything else you'd like to add before we round off the discussion there's two things that i think i'd really love to be able to solve and i feel i've i have i and i we um you know team australia we yet to solve and that is how we can more easily get the nation's resources in the hands of those that own the resources the taxpayer and there's an appropriate tension there with taxpayer money and there needs to be but i would like to challenge i guess as we continue to hopefully think about this going forward that in certain sets of national circumstances are there ways that where we perhaps take a little bit of risk at the institution level in order to reduce a little bit of risk and pressure and stress at the individual and community level and and where do we sit on that risk equation but i i continue to be frustrated by but committed to working out ways that we can do that better because honestly the biggest thing that keeps coming back to me from communities who are exceptional in their honesty and insight just from their own personal experience is that this is hard that it's all there but i just it's i'm tired i'm stressed i'm traumatized i've got a thousand things on my to-do list and i just don't have the energy the where with all and everything else to to reach out and grab it so are there easier ways that we can do that are there ways that we could scaffold the community to do that that interface between governments and people do we need to reinforce that in case management so that it's not here's advice or here's a website or here's a list of the measures it's that and here i am to help you get them now that takes a different form of investment one that a lot of people in an efficiency drive aren't comfortable with but in an effectiveness drive and to reduce trauma going forward i think it's something that we need to be honest with um and ask ourselves the question can we do better at that as particularly as governments and i you know i'm really encouraged as i to the commonwealth governments and the state governments as they're starting to really lock horns with how how do we do that better for our citizens and you know i want to be part of that conversation and i think the last thing that that would be good to get on the record is everyone sort of looks at leadership i don't know why i think it's the way we teach it but we sort of look at it in a hierarchical sense if you ask where does leadership come from it it's sort of the answer people start looking up you know it comes from above and uh you know my experience whether it's on operation combat operations domestic support operations or this recovery and why it's been such a great thing for me in a personal education is leadership comes from absolutely every direction and the majority of it comes from below not above and that's no disrespect to my leaders but it's both and i want to pay tribute to the leadership of community members i really do I see them and I try to walk in their shoes for a day or a week and even just trying to do that visually is hard 
it's tiring in itself, let alone actually doing it for real. And I'll tell you, it is easy to lead when something's on your duty statement and you're getting paid for it. It is really hard to lead when you're suffering yourself, when there's no recompense for it other than feeling good and when it's not part of any duty statement, either family or work, it's in addition to all of that. And I have seen that in spades across 113 local government areas. You know, thousands and thousands of people that are doing that every single day. And I guess as we go forward and we try and build this momentum that continue the relationships and continue to enable communities in their recovery and in life in general, how might we better support those voluntary leaders in communities and other parts of Australia? And I guess if we can find a way to do that and ease their load a little bit, the sky's the limit and we'll be a better country. So I am so much better for this experience, but there's so much more work to be done. I think we we all need to be part of that conversation, regardless of who you work for or where you sit in our national system. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook.